0: Welcome back to Spotlight on Women in Health Ventures, the podcast powered by Thea, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering women as entrepreneurs in healthcare. Dr. Dana Cans is an accomplished professor at London Business School, specializing in organizational behavior and gender inequality within the workplace. Her research applies behavioral insights to understand sources of labor market inequality, spanning the areas of judgment and decision making, ethics, motivation science, and entrepreneurship. Her internationally accredited TED talk entitled The Real Reason Female Entrepreneurs Get Less Funding has spurred many important discussions surrounding the biases that investors carry within their evaluation of startup ventures. Dr. Kan started her career as an investment banker and strategic consultant for Citigroup and Winterberry Group, and then went on to co-found and run a venture-funded startup before re-entering education. Her work has been published in major peer-reviewed journals, such as Science Advances, as well as in practitioner outlets, such as the Harvard Business Review. Her research has also been featured in major news outlets, such as BBC, Bloomberg, Business Insider, Forbes, and the Wall Street Journal. Dr. Kahn holds a Bachelor of Science in Economics from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, and a PhD from Columbia Business School.
1: Hi, Dr. Kans, It's a real treat to have you on with us today. Thank you so much. And it's really exciting to meet another Wharton alumnus who is passionate about women and leadership, has truly emerged as a key opinion leader in gender equity research and organizational management. And you are currently on London Business School. And want want to really hear about, firstly, how and why you got engaged in this field of work.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. That is an interesting question that begs for a much longer answer, but it really comes down to the fact that I was at a stage in my career where I decided I only wanted to spend my time working on problems that really mattered to me and to lots of people out there. And so I had started my career in investment banking and then strategic consulting before co founding my startup, and had always enjoyed doing research as part of all of these different challenging roles. But when I transitioned, to academia by embarking upon my PhD at Columbia Business School, it was really liberating to realize that I could deep dive into one particular area, specializing in something that kept me up at night and made me excited to wake up running regressions in the morning. And so at Columbia, I ended up falling in love with theories that I was exposed to in the discipline of organizational behavior, and was also exposed to labor market data on gender and racial disparities in labor market outcomes. And so these resonated with me based on my former experiences in finance and fundraising. So I guess you could say my area of specialization where I address labor market inequalities lies at this intersection of my own personal and professional experiences and those that I was exposed to in my studies
1: now you've done a ton of research and we would like to get a high level summary of what you suggest as tangible recommendations or key pieces of advice that you have for those women who are starting any type of organization or company
2: Yeah, so my recommendations tend to be for men and women and for people of color and non-BIPOC, so so mine are a little bit broader, but um, this is a question that I confront with my diverse base of students in this fun elective course that I teach here four MBAs at London Business School called Leading Teams and Organizations. And during that course, we talk often about how culture doesn't just happen to an organization. So sometimes when I'm talking to startups, they tell themselves the story that things just happen to them. And they say things like, well, we didn't plan this or anything, but we have this little ritual where we meditate right after eating lunch together, or whatever it may be. And so culture is essentially this set of behaviors that the leaders and the founding teams engage in that amount to the values, norms, and processes of an organization. At least that's how I conceptualize it. And so you might as well do these things deliberately exercising intention about really important issues like equity that affect people's lives and livelihoods. And so the issue for us as researchers is often, how do we actually study cultural elements since they seem so intangible, right? And well, intangible cultural objects and artifacts can provide this really nice window into those values, norms, and processes that represent core elements in an organizational culture, which can then be isolated and investigated. And so, for instance, some of my co authors and I conducted work that was recently published to see whether the language that companies use in their mission statements can, for instance, help to predict things like discriminatory employment decisions. And so, across a 10 year archival study and a series of controlled experiments, we found that the way a company motivates its employees to pursue organizational goals and also influence ethical violations such as workplace discrimination. And so for this, we use a theory of goal pursuit called regulatory mode theory, where we can be induced into pursuing goals with urgent action, which is something called locomotion mode or with thoughtful consideration, which is called assessment mode. And so those studies indicated organizations that motivated their employees to pursue goals with urgent action at the expense of thoughtful consideration were significantly more likely to be involved in EEOC cases of workplace discrimination And then they did so with significantly higher degrees of frequency or the number of times that they were involved in these cases. And so through a series of mediation analyses that we conducted, we discovered that the path through which this effect unfolds is that those motivated to pursue goals with urgent action are less likely to consider ethical standards in place than those motivated to pursue them with thoughtful consideration. And so fortunately, we found that companies can offset high degrees of locomotion language with higher amounts of assessment language to reduce this exposure to workplace discrimination.
1: That's super interesting. I actually had the chance to read the article that was published on Harvard Business Review as well. And I thought, Uh, That's super interesting that just the mission statement alone has such an impact on how people assess how they make decisions on many different ethical dimensions. So based on this study, would you suggest that for those who are starting companies or have already started, they really reflect on the mission statements that they share with their employees? Can they do something beyond the mission statement, such as setting cultures that really enforce people to take time
2: when making decisions? Yeah, so the mission statements are just one textual basis that we can analyze. So there's many ways that you as leaders and co-founding teams go about motivating your employees from even before you bring them on board. So you can run your recruitment language onboarding language, and so on and so forth through a dictionary that we provide in that paper, and it's publicly available on a linguistic inquiry and word count software called Luke that generates the frequencies of these types of terms in a body of text. So mission statements are just one cultural artifact. There are so many other ones that reflect the underlying values, norms, and processes that are collectively constituting your culture.
1: Moving forward, we would love to delve into your other research works as well. To start with, we would like to take an opportunity to learn more about your motivation and also your ultimate investigation of your study on promotion versus prevention. And this was a mindset that we found in both men and women investors. So could you share an overview
2: of this study with our listeners? Yeah, sure. So the motivation for that study is rather simple in the sense that there's this enormous gap in venture funding obtained by male versus female entrepreneurs who are actively seeking capital. And those differences hold even when we account for a number of key factors that can potentially impact funding outcomes related to the founding teams and to the ventures. And so this significant gap persists to this day despite widespread awareness of the issue. And so my co-authors and I sought to hold the demand for capital constant among the ventures that we looked at to peer into the supply of capital and to see what, if any, biases were lurking there at the hands of investors. And so we did this by linguistically analyzing the interactions that investors have with entrepreneurs throughout the course of their fundraising lifetimes and to perform this linguistic analysis, we leveraged a groundbreaking theory of goal orientation known as regulatory focus theory, that was introduced into the academic literature in the late 1990s by my co-author, Columbia professor, Tori Higgins. And so this theory distinguishes between two independent and orthogonal orientations of goals where each of us has our own chronic dispositions towards each. So we could be high in both, low in both, high in one, low in the other, and vice versa. And we can also be situationally induced into focusing on one or the other, which constituted the main thrust of our analyses. And so we conducted a field study coupled with a series of experiments. Well, first of all, let's back it up and talk a little bit more about promotion or prevention. So when we are induced into promotion focus, goals are viewed as ideals. There's a strategic concern for approaching any gains and avoiding whatever non-gains may be lurking in that immediate environment. And it has us focusing on hopes, on accomplishments and advancement oriented needs. But when we're induced into prevention focused goals are instead viewed as oughts or ought to haves. There's a strategic concern instead for approaching any non-losses and avoiding whatever losses happen to be in our immediate environment, where that has us concerning ourselves with safety, security, and responsibility needs. And so across our field study and our experiments that we conducted on both accredited and non-accredited would-be investors... What we found is that male entrepreneurs are significantly more likely to field promotion focused question in this favorable domain of gains, while female entrepreneurs are likely to field prevention focused questions in this unfavorable domain of losses, specifically in this gain maximizing context of venture pitching. And this distinction contributes to the disparity in the funds that their ventures go on to raise, whereby ventures that get asked predominantly promotion-focused questions that align with this gain-oriented setting of venture pitching are allocated significantly more funding than those that get asked predominantly prevention-focused ones.
1: Yeah, I think this study is fascinating. I talked to investors and I recently became an investor myself and have been thinking more about this. We see the stats where female entrepreneurs and founders are not getting the funds. I don't remember the exact number, but in, I think in 2017, out of the entire funding given to founders, maybe 2% went to female founders. It's been under 3%, for sure, to all female founding teams, yeah. Which is crazy. And people keep asking why. And I think this study really explains a big part of what's going on. I think it's also really interesting that it's not just male investors that are at fault with this promotion versus prevention-minded questions but it's also female investors, and we just are not really aware of of that. I wonder if you had any surprising responses from the public, such as entrepreneurs and investors reaching out to you about this research.
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And I was forewarned, at least by my advisor, who said, Wow, your effects here are pretty groundbreaking, but you should expect to get some backlash when you when you go to print on this. And I think he was right in that climate. This was years ago because the study has been going on for For years during the course of my PhD, but when it finally was time for it to come out, the sentiment was instead overwhelmingly positive. And I would say that whether it comes to public policymakers or entrepreneurs and even investors, I think that's because the work came out at a time when the venture industry had become aware of issues plaguing the industry in terms of both explicit and implicit manifestations of bias. So there's this unfortunate confluence of factors that came together that was a bit of a perfect storm that said, hey, we do have a problem. We have to confront it. And they're ready to confront these issues and are actively looking for training and embracing it with open arms to the best of my knowledge. But that does not mean there's, there isn't a long road ahead in terms of enacting meaningful behavioral change. And so the key takeaway for our research is that investors need to reform their best practices with regard to data intake, which includes but isn't limited to thinking ahead about the bucket of questions that they intend to pose to all candidates for funding so that they get asked the same opportunities and have the same ability to highlight aspects of their businesses in the domain of gains and losses. So being able to have this framework and the structure to say, hey, what are the types of questions that we need to be asking, whether it be promotion versus prevention focus, or other theoretical bases that we use, right? So it's not just about going around and just asking everybody promotion focused questions, but asking the same mix of promotion versus prevention questions that happens to support your particular investing mandate Uh, of all of those with whom you're interacting, regardless of gender, and at the same stage, right? So we can think of the pitching stage as being one that lends itself to success if you're able to highlight this promotion-focused information. But as you move down in the investing process, you can imagine post-LOI diligence will favor, hey, we need to be Donning our I's, crossing our T's, and making sure that we ask these prevention-focused questions of everybody are leaning more towards prevention than promotion at that stage. But it's about being consistent and thoughtful and deliberate with that data intake, which includes but is not limited to the questions and answer exchange. That's super interesting. And
1: I love that you laid out this very concrete step in terms of you need to lay out the bucket of questions first instead of just being ad hoc about the questions you ask when you're faced with the specific entrepreneur On the flip side, I wonder if you have any advice for women entrepreneurs, not the investors, who have to face these maybe prevention-minded questions that only come their way. Is there anything that they can do to position themselves so that they're not kind of trapped in this prevention-esque mindset?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. First and foremost, our studies actually confirmed that female entrepreneurs aren't doing anything wrong to warrant these questions and don't need any fixing. So that was one of the things that we were able to confirm that if anything, they actually, they as in female entrepreneurs, pitch with slightly higher degrees of promotion over prevention than their male counterparts did, although those differences were not statistically significant. So they weren't doing anything in the pitch Portion, And then when it came down to the Q&A, that's when they were getting hit with these prevention focused questions over their male counterparts. What we found was that the majority of entrepreneurs, just like other human beings, are apt to respond in kind to the questions that they receive. So here, that means they're likely to respond to a promotion question in promotion focused and focus rather, and a prevention question and prevention focus. And this is gonna cause you a disadvantage for everybody getting asked prevention focus questions in this gain maximizing context of venture pitching. And so fortunately, uh, fortunately, both the fields and experimental results point to the significant benefit of switching focus, whereby entrepreneurs who respond to prevention questions with promotion responses can raise significantly higher amounts of funding for themselves and their startups. So While investors are getting their proverbial acts together in terms of reforming their best practices around data intake, entrepreneurs can learn about this distinction in question orientation and this simple reframing strategy. So I've been responding to requests to conduct training seminars for both investors and entrepreneurs. And each of these different attendee groups seems to very quickly grasp the concept and easily personalize the questions to meet their particular fund versus startup needs during the practice portion of those workshops. So that's been really fortunate to see.
0: So another one of your more recent studies found evidence that investors penalize female founders for lack of industry fit compared to male founders. So in other words, women founders pitching in more male-dominated industries receive less funding and lower valuations, and then for men the gender aspect doesn't really apply to them. They get same funding and valuations regardless of the gender dominance. So my first question associated with this study is, what was your inspiration for pursuing this study and really nailing down this discrepancy?
2: I haven't really thought of that in a long time in terms of the motivation, other than just the labor market differences that were out there. And one of The reasons I guess I would say was when I was talking to audience members about my other work that we just went over on the promotion versus prevention oriented questions, playing a contributing role in those divergent funding outcomes for female versus male-led ventures that many of the audience members kept asking if we had controlled for industry served. And when they were asking about this, the implication was that they thought um, that the female-led ventures were getting less funding because they were catering to what they called quote-unquote female-friendly industries. That's actually very much in stark contrast to the results that we found. So instead, we found that female adventures catering to industries dominated by women in terms of the percentage of women employed, according to the US Bureau of Labor statistics, that those ventures actually receive significantly more, not less, funding than the female adventures that cater to male dominated industries.
0: What are some of the reasons that underpin this discrepancy that you found in your research?
2: So we performed our analyses with this industry variable as a continuous one in terms of the percentage of women employed, but also creating these categories of male versus female dominated versus neutral industries, according to those percentages. And all the results point to a significant interaction effect that I just mentioned. And as to why that interaction effect occurs between the gender of the founding CEO and the gender dominance of the industry served, we performed an experiment where we exposed investors to conditions of venture opportunities that were manipulated for the gender of the founding CEO and the industry served. And we had investors not only submit responses for funding and for valuation, but also rate the perception of the standalone venture and the standalone founding CEO, as well as their perception of the fit between the venture and the founding CEO. And so we found that investors perceived the standalones as being comparable, but female founding CEOs to be significantly less of a fit with their ventures when catering to male as opposed to female dominated industries with no perceived fit differences for the male founding CEOs with their ventures across the industries. And then our mediation model supported the fact that perceived fit did in fact serve to mediate or help explain this relationship between the experimental conditions and the funding and the valuation outcomes. So in other words, misperceptions of fit um, constitute this mechanism behind the effect that we found. And so this is definitely consistent with Madeline Heilman's lack of fit model that says that women will be disadvantaged in these incongruent domains and that men will not be.
0: How would you advise women that are pitching a solution or a product in a more male-dominated industry?
2: I think that what we have prescribed with our findings is that underlying these findings, like we were able to isolate this effect that points to this cognitive bias based on the representativeness heuristic that's triggering lower level misperceptions of this lack of industry fit due to women's employment representation by industry. And so we know that under conditions where there's information missingness amidst uncertainty of some kind, evaluators are likely to fill in the blanks with their assumptions. And so if I were a candidate for funding, I would make sure I conveyed information right up front about my industry experience, about my industry affiliations, about my credentials that are industry-based, and my passions specifically for that industry uh, to prevent anyone from assuming anything about my abilities and about my motivations when it comes to industry served.
0: Now, thinking even more big picture about the events of 2020 and 2021, a lot has happened over the past 12 months. And so how do you think? the world's events have have changed this narrative for better, for worse? Are people being more reflective? What are your thoughts on this? Are you hopeful for the future, essentially, given what has happened in the past?
2: I am hopeful. I think the numbers do speak for themselves. Like The past few years have set equal rights back in many ways, and I'm looking forward to the new administration in the U.S. unwinding some of these policy setbacks. I'm worried like many others about how much women have been set back in the aftermath of COVID-19 having borne the brunt of the job losses and lost out in many ways on funding opportunities where investors are really just scrambling to support existing companies in their portfolio so that they don't go under. And unfortunately, I think we're in a very difficult position now, but I do hope that efforts not only continue, but are quadrupled in terms of the governmental and private resources that are earmarked to support underrepresented business founders. And I think that think tanks and press around research coming out to document these disparities and create awareness for them are so important so that people really do understand, hey, here's the state of affairs right now. Here's where we are in the post pandemic time frame and here's what needs to be done. So yeah, I think that that creating that awareness and those calls to action is now more important than ever really.
0: I think the key word is is awareness. I actually have a male friend who saw your latest paper on the gender discrepancy and investing and such. And he emailed that research to me. He's like, did you see this? Can you believe this? And so he wasn't aware of some of these discrepancies that existed. And so it's nice to see that men are becoming more engaged in this conversation and want to learn and, and want to change the narrative moving forward.
2: Yeah, I agree. I'm hopeful about that and about the mindset right now that has a high degree of openness and vulnerability and situational humility. And so at this point, I think it's just about earmarking resources to say, hey, we have the awareness. Let's go ahead and follow through with this best practice reform. What does that look like? Make a commitment that's a long term commitment with tangible hard and fast milestones that we would like to hit and um, an action plan that supports those milestones instead of just saying, hey, well, we did this training seminar and we're good to go.
3: Dr. Cans, we wanted to thank you so much for spending this Sunday morning with us and giving us a great overview of your research efforts and the potential for it to really revolutionize the world of venture capital and entrepreneurship and just empower specifically our listeners to consider these things, consider the questions that they're being asked and position themselves well, as you alluded to being asked a prevention-based question and, and positioning it as a promotion answer is very powerful and can really unlock more opportunity for the venture. But to close out our conversation, we'd like to ask you one final question a pretty broad one, but we'd like to hear about your vision for what gender parity may look like in the field of venture capital and entrepreneurship. What's sort of the ideal? What is all this research that you've put so much effort and persistence behind? What is the ultimate goal for your vision moving forward?
2: Yeah. So for me, I mean, success, quote unquote, looks like parity on both the investor and the entrepreneur side. So in other words, I want to see female founders of ventures actively seeking capital, receiving 50% of the allocated funding out there. And I would love to see 50% of the decision makers in venture capital be women, as opposed to only 20% of angels and, and 5% of VCs, according to some of the latest estimates I've seen.
0: Thank you all for listening. Visit us on Instagram at Thea Healthcare, on Twitter at TheaHC, and on our website at TheaHC.org for more content. As always, feel free to reach out via DM or our website's contact form with any questions or comments for us or our guests. Special thanks to our amazing audio editors, Ellie Park and Asim Jane. If you're enjoying our content, please consider supporting our podcast by donating at anchor.fm/thea-hc/support.